Pet Behavior Consulting Essentials. The essentials for success for those who work with pet behavior problems. With your hosts, Dr. Suzanne Hetz and Dr. Dan Step, Behavior Education Network. Welcome, everybody. This is Dr. Suzanne Hetz. And Dr. Dan Step. And in this episode of our podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about terminology, and spe- um, specifically the word drive. In a field striving to be more science-based, I think one of the stumbling blocks toward that goal in the dog training field is its use of certain um, words and terminology. Part of the problem is because there's no standard educational path to become a dog trainer. Since there isn't a, a codified body of knowledge that's required before you hang a, out a shingle and set up shop, People use terms and words inconsistently based on their background and experience and what they've been taught by various people. And we have situations where people are inventing new meanings for words that are either different from how we use them on a day-to-day basis or how they've been used in the scientific literature or both. And the term drive is one of those examples of a term that behavior scientists sort of left behind and abandoned 40 more years or, or so ago, but for some reason it still persists It persists in the dog training field. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of the word drive and why behavior scientists stopped using it so long ago. Do you want to kind of take that part, Dr. Dan? Well, the idea came about way back when, before we really knew much about the internal workings of the brain and how the 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 physiological mechanisms that were responsible for um, certain kinds of behaviors occurring. We've gotten to a point today where we know a whole lot more about that. But back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, when they were using this term, um, they didn't really have any good idea about what was the internal mechanisms were. And so they developed this idea of drive to be um, and to stand for an internal mechanism that energizes and directs behavior, okay? So drive was a way of trying to explain the moment-to-moment changes in behavior, why it is that a dog chases a ball at one point in time but isn't interested in chasing the ball at another point in time. Well, something must be going on inside to change that, um, that behavior, and so we set, we're going to call that drive, and he's got more drive at some times and less drive at other times. And didn't it kind of reflect the, the kind of mechanistic view of animals that was popular at the time where there was this drive-specific energy that reached a certain critical point? Well, yeah, the ethologist had, we're talking about things in a little bit different way than the, than the American psychologist were, but they both were really trying to get at the same idea. So, as you said, the, the behavior scientists kind of left this term behind a while back, back in the 60s or so, but trainers have persisted in using it for reasons that we don't really, I guess, understand very well. But one of the more common uses of, of drive is to describe a dog with high prey drive, or sometimes we hear about high pack drive. So when you hear about high prey drive, what what do you think that means based on your experience? I mean, from a dog training standpoint, how they're using it. The way they typically use it is to describe dogs that are prone to chase things. So dogs that are prone to chase bicycles or balls or 
small moving animals, those kinds of things would be described as having high prey drive. So when a, somebody says their dog has a high prey drive, that's, that's exactly what you mean, that he chases balls, he chases a person in a bite suit, chases cats or small critters. And then if the, you look at the other way and somebody says, well, why does my dog chase balls? He has high prey drive or he, he has pride, high prey drive and so therefore he chases balls. So it's kind of a circular explanation. Well, and that's one of the reasons why the um, early behaviorists uh, got rid of the term was is because they couldn't really tie it to anything independent. Um, so it became a circular argument. Um, if your dog is chasing balls at one point in time, he's got high prey drive. If he isn't, he's got low prey drive. How do you know if your dog has low prey drive? He doesn't chase balls. So it just becomes circular and it doesn't really help us to understand anything. And it also, that's an example of what you've described before as the nominal fallacy. What's the nominal fallacy? Nominal fallacy is the idea that if you name something, you somehow have explained it. So I've got a name for it. I've got this drive, so that must be the explanation. But just simply naming something doesn't necessarily explain it. And as we just said, saying a dog has high prey drive doesn't really tell us anything about why he chases balls sometimes and not others. And as we've been talking about drive, originally in the scientific literature, as Dan said, it was an attempt to explain changes in moment-to-moment -moment motivation. But what's happened in the dog training world over the years is that prey drive and pack drive and a couple of other ones that you hear from time to time are that Term, those terms are also being used to refer to personality traits, relatively stable um, temperament traits that are not changeable and are pretty consistent over time. And that was never how the term drive was used in the scientific literature. It was used to talk about moment-to-moment -moment changes, not consistent personality traits. No, and those two things are really different. You can't have something, uh, um, some sort of mechanism that controls the moment-to-moment -moment changes in behavior that also describes consistencies in behavior that occur uh, across long periods of time and are consistent within an individual. It just, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's, t it's two entirely different things. And in fact, there's been, well, let me back up for a moment. By using the term prey drive, the assumption is that there are a cluster of behaviors that kind of correlate with one another. That if a dog has high prey drive, he's likely to chase balls, he's likely to chase and maybe even kill cats, um, he likes to chase joggers, um, pretty much anything that moves. So there's this assumption that those behaviors are associated with one another and if a dog has one or two of those he's also more likely to have um, to make it easy to display the other ones and also subsumed under that is some of the cha cha uh, shaking behaviors that dogs do with toys those kinds of things but in fact a, a couple of personality studies have found that in reality those behaviors are not associated with, with one another at all when people do personality studies of dogs, um, the, one that we're, the ones we're both going to describe to you here in a minute, they ask people a lot of questions about the dog's likelihood to display certain behaviors from never to occasionally to um, all the time. And then they take those different items and do some 
statistical analyses on those to see which items end up being associated with each other and what they call loading on certain factors if they're doing a regression analysis. Is that the easiest way to put it? Well, in, in a factor analysis, the idea is, is that you're looking for all these multiple correlations. So you take um, all of these different measures that from the surveys that you've got, and, and then you throw them all into this computer program. And what it does then is, is it sorts out the ones that are correlated, highly correlated with each other, and the ones that aren't. And the ones that are highly correlated are called a factor. And then what happens is, is the scientists look at the, all those things that are all in the same factor, and they give the factor a name. So the name is something that people create to describe this cluster of behaviors that all seem to go together. And so then in these studies that we'll describe for you, then these different factors um, have been identified. And then one that was done a number of years ago by Dr. Peter Borchel and Dr. Linda I'm sorry, Dr. Linda Goodlow, both certified applied animal behaviorists, they identified three different play factors in their research. There was um, one play factor that was characterized by um, items describing carrying toys to the owner to initiate play, chasing and retrieving thrown objects, and demonstrating an attachment to toys. Another play factor that they called play factor two, as compared to the first one, um, described items that where the dog would engage in rough play that was accompanied by growling and shaking or chewing of the toys. And play three uh, was a factor where the dog became quickly kind of bored with play, either with the owner or um, with himself or with a family member. And all three of those different um, play factors, as I just described them, you can see that they include things that that you'd be likely to put under this quote label of of prey drive chasing and shaking objects and um, rough play with the toys um, those sorts of things in fact those play none of those play um, factors were correlated at all with the predation factor and the predation factor included items about dogs chasing small animals and sometimes either killing or injuring them and in fact the first play factor had a negative correlation with predation so that's really strong evidence that this whole notion of prey drive that says well that's it's associated with with predatory behavior and dogs who like to chase small critters then will also like to chase balls and and other moving things, those behaviors really are not um, correlated with one another, and that play with balls and toys and, and, and chasing toys are very different behaviors from predation. They don't correlate together at all. So that really kind of undermines this whole idea of a prey drive that supposedly puts those behaviors all in one kind of related cluster. And there have been a number of these kinds of studies that have been done using different kinds of methodology. The sort of methodology that Susanna has described for you is basically a survey study where um, owners are asked about the behaviors of their dogs. Another way to do that is, is to measure the behavior directly with some sort of standardized test. And the study that I'm going to describe for you by um, Zwartberg and, and Forkman, um, two Swedish scientists back in 2002, where they took testing um, that had been developed for working dogs in Sweden. 
and they looked at over 15,000 records of these dogs that have been run through this battery of tests and then did a factor analysis on it and to see which kinds of behaviors tended to hang out together. And they found one factor that really um, was what they call playfulness, which involved things like fetching a ball, tug of war, things like that. And another separate factor that they call chasing, in which they drug around a small um, furry object on a string and looked to see if the dog would chase it and, and, and jump at it and attack it and that sort of thing. Well, those were two different factors. So there again, it looks like that these things that people normally kind of put together when they talk about prey drive really don't seem to hang together even in these different kinds of studies. And yet other studies have used other methodologies, don't find um, the same sort of factors that even these two studies have found. So there's a lot of variability in t depending on how you, um, how you measure these different things, whether you do it from surveys or direct behavioral observations, uh, the kinds of questions that you ask, the kinds of behaviors, even the kinds of dogs that you use. Are you talking about working dogs? Are you talking about uh, toy poodles, you talk, you know, all of those kinds of factors can make a big difference as well. So the generality of this whole notion of prey drive really begins to break down once you begin to look at it in detail. And that's really the, the point that we're trying to make here. So to finish up then, we'd ask, well, why, why should you care um, about all of this research that shows that prey drive is really a, a meaningless term that um, is not supported by the assumptions that, that it, it, it supposedly is founded on. Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. Just to give you an example, there was just a question in one of the online forums that I um, participate in from time to time where somebody asked, how can I increase my dog's prey drive? Well, a question like that is never going to have a helpful answer because first off, we're not even, we don't even know what behaviors we're talking about. Or it would be much more helpful to ask, how can I increase my dog's desire to chase balls? How can I um, decrease or increase my dog's motivation to chase somebody in a, in a bite suit? Maybe the opposite. How can I decrease my dog's motivation to, to chase joggers? So there's, when you talk about prey drive, nobody even knows what behaviors you're talking about with use of that term. And increasing a dog's motivation to chase balls may take a whole lot different sorts of techniques than um, trying to increase his motivation to attack and kill mice if you're looking at a terrier whose um, job is to kill mice in a barn. So that's the first problem is that it, it, it causes us to ask the wrong questions. Um, and I think the second reason why it matters is that if the dog training field is really trying to be more science-based and well-grounded in the scientific literature, hanging on to these antiquated terms that are vague, that have been shown through research to, to really um, not be grounded in the assumptions that are made about them, it, um, it decreases the credibility of the field and or of the people using them in the long term. So it matters not only in a practical applied sense in terms of how can we do what we do better, but it also matters in, in a theoretical or professional or credibility sense as well. So if you'd like to learn more about the subject of, of drives and of the science pertaining really to dog training, 
we, we have a great offer for you, which is to join Behavior Education Network. We did a whole, what, two-session, I think, webinar course on drives and motivation of behavior for our Behavior Education Network members. And we also right. um, review scientific papers every single month in, in Ben. I don't know if you reviewed the, um, um, the Swedish paper that you just mentioned in Ben or not. We haven't reviewed that one yet. No, no, but we've talked about the personality uh, papers in the past. So it gives you a chance to be exposed to the scientific literature and not just exposed to it, but to the analysis of it. So you know whether or not a study was a good study or a not so good study, what the different methods mean and how um, the researchers arrived at the conclusions that they did. And we also talk about practical things in, in Ben as well. Um, the how-tos that we talked about earlier, increase motivation or decrease motivation depending on the specific behaviors that you're talking about. And how to even create an even more successful business. Absolutely, just to give you a few examples. So we hope that you found this information helpful. Um, we hope it helps you to think more precisely about um, what you want to do when you're trying to increase or decrease your dog's motivation to engage in a particular behavior, rather than being vague about prey drive and pack drive and that sort of thing. That concludes this episode of our podcast, and you can listen to previous ones and future ones by sub subscribing to us in iTunes under Pet Behavior Consulting Essentials. Have a good rest of your day or evening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye, everybody.